Welcome to From the Pastor's Heart with Pastor Chad and Pastor Joel. From the Pastor's Heart is a weekly podcast from the pastoral staff of First Baptist Church of Opelousas, where we take a deep dive into the issues facing Christianity and culture from a Christian worldview. To find out more, visit us online at www.fbcopelousas.org or look for our family of podcasts on most major podcast providers. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Joel and Pastor Chad, with this week's Deep Dive. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. That's Charles Spurgeon. And we want to welcome you to another episode of From the Pastor's Heart. This is Pastor Chad. And this is Pastor Joel. Joining us today is Dalton Adger. He is the Associate Pastor and Youth Minister of First Baptist Church of Eunice. Thanks for being with us, Dalton. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So today's topic is one near and dear to our hearts. We want to talk a little bit about evangelism, the Great Commission. Uh, that has been given to every believer in Jesus Christ. So uh, so you understand how we format this today. We're going to talk about the Great Commission itself. What is evangelism? What is the responsibility of the believer? Then we're going to take some time and, and walk through some of the missteps of the modern church uh, from some of the methodology we use to some of the approaches that just really honestly aren't biblical. Then finally, uh, today, we'll look at the biblical model. How does Scripture say that we are to evangelize? Is there a specific way that Scripture says we're to evangelize? So uh, right off the bat, to get us started, guys, and, and Dalton and Chad, both of you pipe in here, what is the Great Commission in Matthew 28? Well, uh, we know what it says. It says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, uh, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. We find that there in Matthew 28, and what we see is that Jesus, who's about to ascend into heaven, uh, does not leave his people, his apostles, and then later uh, the church with nothing to do. He tells them, go and make disciples. In other words, go and share the gospel. Go and preach the message of salvation, go and lead people to uh, Jesus as Lord. That's what Jesus tells us to do, and to teach them, to disciple them uh, as they follow Jesus. And I think one of the things, too, that, that we often forget in the modern church is this is a mandate. Right. Mm-hmm. It is a command yeah. for every believer from our Lord Jesus Christ Uh, Some of the statistics that I see are quite startling when it comes to professing believers in Jesus Christ and the lack of consistency in sharing the gospel. Uh, I think the last stat I read, uh, most Christians go anywhere from six months to a year without ever sharing the gospel, and that's horrifying to me. Mm -hmm. Because if that's the case, if we have been commanded uh, by our Lord and Savior to share the gospel, and you go a year with no urgency to warn others of of the hell that awaits leaving this earth apart from the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, uh, it's honestly very concerning. To right, me. and and to add to that, it is a command, and and I like that Jesus uh, precedes that command by saying, "All authority in heaven and earth 
has been given to me. And so you know it's coming from authoritative figure. Well, of, of course that is. It's Jesus himself who is king of the universe. But it does come as a command. This is, this is the first command that Jesus gives as he resurrects. Right, yeah. And it's not called the great suggestion. We call it the great commission. Uh, like you said, it is that command. It's a mandate. I think one of the problems is the average Christian, the average church member, uh, treats evangelism like it's the pastor's job. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, they might mention Jesus when they get a chance to every once in a while. But when it comes to really leading someone to Christ or or sharing the gospel with others, uh, they think, well, that's what we pay the pastor for. And that's not at all the biblical view. It's every Christian's responsibility to share the gospel, to evangelize. But let me ask you guys this. Do you think as pastors we share some of the blame in the sense of we have almost inverted the purpose of the worship gathering uh, and made it an evangelical outreach as opposed to growing, spiritually preparing the believers to be that evangelical outreach in the world. I mean, um, both of you were like me. You're raised in evangelical churches. Every worship service is centered around building to the climax, which is the altar call. Uh, So it's almost like we have helped with this misinformation of what the purpose of the service is and made the believer feel like their job in evangelism is just just invite them to church, get them here where the pastor can evangelize. Yeah, Joel, I agree. I think that's part of the underlying problem is that people uh, do treat it that way. Uh, they treat the church gathering as primarily for the unbeliever. But that's not what we see in Scripture. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, "...and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works." not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see there the author of Hebrews is instructing believers, and when he gets to the Lord's Day gathering, he says, make sure that you don't neglect that. Some are in the habit of neglecting that, but instead, meet together, stir up one another to love and good works, and encourage one another. The The emphasis there is on those who are already saved, now, that doesn't mean that the church service shouldn't have an ev- an evangelistic emphasis at all. The gospel should be clearly presented. Uh, we should expect sometimes non-believers to be in the church service with us. You know, right. it's good we, to invite. We see that in First yeah. Corinthians 14 when he's talking about uh, how it would be appropriate to speak in tongues and when it's appropriate to prophesy. We see exactly that. He says, if there are non-believers amongst you, it's better to prophesy so that the law is out there so that sinners would be convicted of the truth and repent and believe in Jesus. Yeah, and there's been many, many uh, people throughout church history that have been converted during a a worship service, during the gathering Mm -hmm. of the church. Charles Spurgeon's one of them. I've I've read his conversion experience, and he couldn't make it to the church he wanted to go to. It was too snowy that day. It was during the winter storm, and he wandered into uh, uh, some other church. Uh, that was closer by, and he heard a sermon, and that's when the Lord converted him. And so we don't want to neglect that, the fact that nonbelievers will be in our church services oftentimes. But the church is not designed, and and the worship service should not be designed to cater to the nonbeliever. Instead, that's the time that the believers come together. They're encouraged. They worship God together. They're fed by the Word. And if we're going about it the way God designed it, uh, then those believers will go out throughout the week and share the gospel with their friends, with their family, with their coworkers, with strangers, 
with anyone who God gives them an opportunity to share the gospel with. And uh, that's how it's happened through all of church history. God has used that. Well, and I think, too, this misunderstanding of what the church, the worship service is, it hurts believers because when a pastor, every service, his chief goal is to make it to the altar call, to the response hymn, his messages and his teaching is always going to be geared toward that. He's never going to go deeper. He's never going to teach the deeper things of God. So that Christian is never going to grow spiritually. It's going to be hard, and the church actually works as an encumbrance on them transitioning from the milk of babes uh, to the meat of the deeper things of God. Yeah, and I, I think that clarifies what you were saying earlier, as the blame does fall on pastors, but it falls on pastors primarily when we're not teaching our members or our congregants or equipping them to, to share the gospel with others. Uh, when we're not doing our job as disciplers, uh, equipping them to go out and confidently uh, preach the gospel to other people. So along with this conversation about uh, a misinterpretation or misunderstanding of what the worship service is for, I want to use that and, and kind of transition into some of the modern methodology within the church that's problematic. I think, and, and guys, you tell me if you you disagree, most modern views of evangelism are built upon Romans uh, verses like Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth uh, that Jesus is Lord and believe God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But, but I feel like we look at that with modern Western eyes. Uh, we bring, all of us are guilty of bringing cultural presupposition uh, to passages. So when we look at that verse in a church setting, we say, well, in a room full of believers, that means if I will just come forward, then I'm saved. And and I feel like we lose something there because historically, you have to remember, Paul was writing to a church under increasing persecution that ultimately would see its zenith with Christians being nailed to crosses, covered in pitch, and lit on fire to act as street lights uh, in Rome. Paul was telling those people. If you can, you know, you must confess Jesus is Lord. You cannot deny uh, his lordship, people who who ultimately could have been facing death for that confession. And yet somehow we've moved into the American church to where in a room full of believers, if you will raise your hand in secret or you'll come forward and just repeat a few words behind the pastor that it's the same thing. So as we move into this section, I want to hear your thoughts on that. Right. Well, I think what you're saying, Joel, is the original Christians that Paul was writing to, he was telling them salvation comes with the cost of possibly your life. To confess Jesus as Lord is to be willing to give up your life for Him. And so today we take that and empty that meaning, kind of like you're saying, to where if you just repeat the words, or if you'll just say the words, Jesus is Lord, uh, without your life reflecting that He actually is the Lord, um, it's the same thing. But even in Scripture, I think that uh, that doesn't really jive. If you look at Matthew seven twenty one, for example, Jesus says that there will be those who said to Him, Lord, Lord, and yet He's going to say, Depart from me, for I never knew you. Now, they confessed Him as Lord with their mouth. They said it, uh, and yet it wasn't the true kind of confession that Paul was talking about there in Romans 10. It was an empty confession. And so I think a misunderstanding there is kind of where we get this idea of a sinner's prayer. If you just repeat this prayer after me, you get saved. 
Uh, it's what's often called easy believism. It's just mm-hmm. one moment in time where you say the right words, almost like a magic formula, and you're saved for the rest of your life. That's just not the biblical picture at all. No, and and, and I get very concerned, and, and this is kind of a, uh, I don't want to beat a dead horse, and I know our congregation's used to Pastor Chad and I kind of railing against this, but but it's almost an unbiblical view of you come forward, you say these words, and then I'm going to declare you saved. And I fear right. often that people walk away just as unregenerate as when they come, but now when God truly does deal with them the next time up, now it's that much harder because they almost have to be unbrainwashed to say, well, I did this already. I'm good to go, even though there have been no evidences, no fruits of the Spirit in right. my life. Right. And the fruit of God truly saving someone is not that they've said a prayer. It's that they have they have repented of their sins and they believe in Jesus Christ. It's repentance and faith. Those are the fruits of salvation. Those are the evidences of salvation. Now, I do want to be careful because I, I think that a prayer to God, a, a cry out for God's mercy, um, asking God for forgiveness is a natural expression and a biblical expression of repentance and faith. But it's not the words that save. And if a sinner's prayer is not ever uttered, that doesn't mean someone hasn't been saved. If they have repented of their sins and if they trust in Jesus, they've been saved. Um, and so, you know, I think we have to be careful here of where we attribute salvation. Exactly. And so, yeah. uh, you know, the Baptist way is typically, you know, uh, we will say things like this. I was saved when I was 12 years old, and I, this is what I preached Sunday morning, uh, last Sunday. Uh, I was saved when I was 12 years old. I walked an aisle. I got down on my knees at the altar. I repeated a prayer uh, after my pastor. I got baptized, and I wrote the date down in the front of my Bible. And so the problem there is it's all in the first person, and it's it's neglecting the reality that we are saved through the third person, which would be through the person of Christ. And so that's when we have to look and say, well, he's the one who died in my place. He's the one who took the wrath of God. When we attribute it that way, it doesn't become formulaic. It's, it's you know, yet we may sometimes see that we pray a prayer in the moment that Christ has saved us. Well, and I fear often the mistake with this and the problem is they have come forward based upon an emotional response when truthfully there may not have even been a full, clear presentation right. of the gospel given because this is another issue, I think, that that we really have in the American church, quote-unquote. We try to sell the cure without ever diagnosing the illness. That's right. And what I mean by that is often we try to draw the center by carnal means. We don't talk about right. the law. We don't talk about our guilt before God. Instead, we say things like, He'll just if you'll just come to the cross, he'll give you peace and joy mm-hmm. and hope. And and so you're you're telling this unbeliever, this unregenerate person about truth spiritually that they're not going to understand. Because for an unregenerate person, peace, joy, prosperity, all of this is tied together. Peace means I have a bank account full of money, I have a good job, I have all of these things, which scripture does not promise. Peace means that I was once an enemy of my Father in heaven, that I was an Mm -hmm. enemy of my Creator. Now I'm a child of the King, a child of my Father. So I fear we do immense damage uh, when we don't adequately present the gospel. And and listen, I was raised in a church like this. I heard Sunday after Sunday, uh, God was presented as this cosmic genie, and if I would just come to Him, life would be great. I never heard about the law. I never heard about my sin, about God's holiness. 
And honestly, for many years, I was a false convert. And the first time I truly heard of God's holiness and my sin before him, it absolutely wrecked me. But it's also when God truly saved me. So I think it's almost this witch's brew of issues of uh, you're, you're bringing them forward. You haven't clearly presented the gospel. You haven't explained their need for a Savior. Now you've given them some unbiblical formula, just repeat after me, and you've declared them to be justified when you have no idea. And then I want to kind of transition into something you mentioned earlier, Dalton, before we started recording. The next problem in this kind of holy or unholy trinity of evangelism is once we get that decision made and that card filled out, it kind of stops there. There's no follow-up That's right. to say, if you believe, these are the things you should see. That's right. Yeah. So if someone has been saved, if God has done that saving work in someone's life, it's vital that they get connected to a church body and that they're discipled. Uh, we talked about the Great Commission a minute ago. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. There's a guy in my church that often says, Jesus said, make disciples, not just converts. And to give someone assurance of their salvation based on one moment in time where they repeated a prayer and then never follow up with them is a huge problem because we got a lot of people walking around thinking that they are right with God because someone told them they are based on a prayer that they repeated after a watered-down message, uh, and they've never had any discipleship or follow-up, which uh, which would reveal to them whether they— were regenerate or not. That's that's really when we find out whether people have been saved. It's not in a moment. It's in the life after. Uh, as you disciple them, if they continue to follow after Christ, if they have that repentance and faith, it shows that the Holy Spirit truly does dwell in them. And yet, if we're not doing that work of discipleship, who knows who's been saved and who hasn't? And it's almost like once we get them to the altar, once they've prayed that prayer, then we're finished. Yeah. Right. Well, like we got the number we can write down. Yeah, we declare yeah. you saved, you're safely in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So I completely agree. And all that does for us, you know, as we, we're sitting here trying to diagnose where the church has failed, all that does is solidify the accusations we make. And, and when, when there's no follow-up, when there's no um, checking in on the person that's made this quote-unquote decision for Christ— um, when there is no follow-up, it does solidify the reality that they're in it for the numbers. It's not about the person's soul. It's 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 about the organization that they're supporting. It's it's a it's a tactic in a sense. Well, and it kind of leads into this this uh, something else you mentioned earlier, Dalton. This easy, easy believism, mm-hmm. and it's almost as if somehow we can accept Jesus Christ as our Savior and divorce that from Him being our Lord. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is where this lack of follow-up discipleship is so incredibly dangerous because you have right. sold Him as their Savior. You haven't explained the truth that this is a package deal. He is your Lord. Uh, and I know me personally, when I deal with someone, they come forward during a response time, I will never tell that person you're justified. What I will do is invite them for further counseling, saying if this is real— then this is what you'll start to see, these right. fruits of the Spirit mm-hmm. in your life. And I'll, I'll never forget sitting in on a panel, listening when we were in the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, listening to one of the leaders decry the number of baptisms dropping among those between the ages of 13 and 17. And they looked at that as a sign of, of there being a problem. Baptisms were down. Well, I pose one simple question. Of those who were baptized in this number category, 
How many of them are still connected to a local church body? Do we follow up with that to tell, okay, it was legit, and I'll never forget the guy looking at me like I was speaking another language, right. like they couldn't get past this uh, this idea or couldn't wrap their mind around that. What do you mean? No, they they said the sinner's prayer. They've been baptized. They're good to yeah. go. And mm-hmm. and so I think it's a, a flaw, a fatal flaw within the system. So we've really mentioned three big problems, and um, they all overlap. But just to just for clarity's sake, we talked about the watered down message. How. Uh, Parts of the gospel are skipped, passed over, uh, watered down. You know, nobody wants to talk about God's wrath. Nobody wants to talk about how we're guilty under the law of God. Nobody wants to talk about true repentance. And so we water down the message because we know that will get a, a greater response. There'll be more people that'll walk down the aisle if you tell them God will give you a great life than there will be if you say you must repent of your sins and turn to a holy God and trust in Him. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the first problem, that watered down message and that leads to easy believism, which is that second problem, which can include the sinner's prayer. It often includes pushing for a decision. Instead of making sure that you're presenting the gospel clearly, you just try to jump to a decision. Um, right, and, and that's it, where you see they, they'll they tell the really sappy, sad story right before right. an altar call, get the emotions all stirred up, and yeah. Yeah, yeah, emotional manipulation plays so, a big part of all and of let, that. Let me jump in right here. I will give you an, an example, okay? Mm-hmm. I went last year when our youth went to Fuego. I went one night over there to be with the kids and Pastor Chad. The gentleman actually did a good job preaching that night. He taught on the Holy Spirit, how often a move of the Holy Spirit is not in this big emotional outburst. It's in the daily things, the commitment to study in the Bible, to prayer, to repentance. Very impressed, very unlike other messages I had heard at youth events. He gets to the, the time of response and tells the story of three different children, three different stories of children dealing with cancer. Uh, One of them he had stand up there, absolutely had no connection to the message. Mm -hmm. From that moment, getting all the kids emotional, tears all Mm -hmm. over the building, then calls them forward for salvation. So these kids were feeling all kinds of emotion, right? right? It was very horrible and, and often uplifting stories of these children dealing with cancer. But that emotion was then mistaken as a move of the Holy Spirit sure. towards salvation. And and I see this over and over again. So when we talk about this emotionalism, yeah. this is what we mean, right. purposefully manipulating the emotion, uh, not with the law of the Lord, not with a broken, contrite heart over our sin, but uh, extraordinary means in order to get them to come forward. Right, yeah. yeah. And I think the question we have to ask ourselves whenever we have someone who's emotional, has an emotional response is what is this emotion coming from Mm -hmm. or what led to it? Uh, Because I don't think you have to have emotion, uh, at at least expressed emotion as a part of a a conversion experience when God truly does save you. But that is often emotional. I mean, you're you're turning away from a life of sin. You're you're coming to know a holy God for the first time in your life. That can be a very emotional uh, thing that happens. But if the gospel's not clearly presented and a bunch of kids or a bunch of people in a church service are getting emotional when it wasn't the gospel that has done it, you have to ask yourself, well, where's this emotion coming from? I mean, I remember there's been several events where hundreds of students, I've been to lots of student events, hundreds of students will come down. um, They're crying. 
you ask any one of them, what are you coming down for? And half of them can't tell you. Mm-hmm. They say, I don't, I've been, I don't know. I've been told, I, yeah, exactly. I've been told, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just emotional. Yeah. I yeah. just, you know, or, uh, you know, whatever it is. And it's because the gospel wasn't clearly presented. And yet these, these people know what they're doing when it comes to getting responses mm-hmm. uh, that are emotional responses. And they equate that with salvation. And it's just not. Yeah. But just to get back on track, you were talking about three uh, big points, and you were on the second point of easy believism. I wanted to hear the rest of that thought. Yeah, easy believism, which includes pushing for decisions. That's where we started talking about this emotionalism. And that's also what I think leads to this this faulty idea of the sinner's prayer equals salvation. Um, And so we've already touched on these. I was just kind of trying to summarize them. Uh, so we got the watered down message. We got easy believism, and then lastly, what we talked about: no follow up, no discipleship. Mm-hmm, right. And the reason I want to summarize those three categories at this point is because um, they're all connected. Usually, if you've got one of these, you've got all three of them mm. uh, with faulty evangelism practices. Uh, and so, where where one of them is there, it leads to the other ones. You you water down the message because you're going to tell people they can just repeat a prayer. To receive it, so you, you get them all emotional. You tell them what prayer to repeat, and then you never have to deal with them again. And you count their numbers. Yeah, that's that's kind of the pattern that I see often. So, so now that that'll transition us into our final part of the conversation today. I think we did a pretty good job diagnosing the ills and where we've went wrong, and it leads to the question now: What is the biblical model? What's the biblical approach to evangelism for the person? listening right now who has that coworker, that friend, that neighbor who they want to share the gospel with. Uh, now we've said, you know, it, it's not promising them peace, joy, and happiness. It's it's not just repeat after me, uh, this, this special mystical prayer. So what is that person to do? Sure. Well, we need to be reminded what Romans 1.16 says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul writes there that the reason he's not ashamed of the gospel is because the gospel is God's power to save. The the, the gospel is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. It's in the declaration of the good news of Jesus Christ that salvation is found. And so if we want to evangelize faithfully— we have to present the gospel clearly. That's really the biblical method, is make sure that the gospel is clearly presented. And when I say the gospel, I mean the holistic gospel. I mean all of the gospel, not Mm -hmm. pieces of it. Jesus loves you is not the gospel. Uh, Your testimony is not the gospel. Now, your testimony can be a launching pad into sharing the gospel, but uh, there's all sorts of things that we call the gospel that uh, it's not the gospel. The gospel is this message. I usually think of it in four parts, and this is pretty common. I didn't come up with this, but God, man, Christ, response. Mm-hmm. Uh, we God exists as a holy God, which means that He can have nothing to do with sin other than His righteous judgment of it and wrath against it. Uh, he has created us, and He has created us for His glory, uh, and He created man in His image to have relationship with Him. So that's the first part, God. And then you move to man. What happened? Well, sin entered the world— and uh, since sin entered the world, we've all sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that separates us from God in a relational sense, but it also places us under His wrath. Mm-hmm. Ephesians 2 says that we are children under wrath before God saves us. 
And so we have a big problem there. And that's, I think that's the part that gets brushed over a lot of times. What's the solution, though? Well, God the Son, Jesus Christ, uh, God took on human flesh, and He lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. He, he fulfilled all righteousness, we're told in the New Testament. And then uh, as the ultimate act of obedience, He died as a sacrifice. And when He was on the cross, He became the propitiation for our sins. And that means that He took on the Father's wrath against sin. It wasn't that God just said, well, sin's no big deal, I'll overlook it. No, the penalty was paid by Jesus Christ for all those who would believe in Him. Yeah. And then he rose again three days later so that he could grant life to all those who believe in him. So that's God, man, Christ, and then we see response. We talked about this already. The biblical response to this message is um, repentance and faith. By God's grace, the Holy Spirit does a work in the sinner's heart as he hears the gospel message. And as he hears that gospel message, uh, he's convicted to repent of his sin. That means turn away from that sinful lifestyle and to believe in Jesus. Salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ. And so that response must be repentance and faith. But that's a response to what the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart through the gospel message. So the question is, how do you evangelize? The way to evangelize is however you need to communicate it, you communicate that message clearly and let God handle the results of that. Well, and I think step one is is where the problem lies. We often try to skip the first step and move on to the presentation of Christ. But I think the psalmist in Psalm 19 says the law of the Lord is perfect in converting the soul. Because yeah. when a person's soul is laid bare before the law of God, it removes all self-righteousness, mm-hmm. all self-ability, and you realize your desperate and radical need for a Savior. I think, again, of Paul talking about his own uh conversion. And Paul, you know, at the time thought he was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He had kept the law perfectly. And yet in Galatians 3.24, when he truly come to understand that the law was condemning him, he said it was a schoolmaster that drove him to Christ. Right. You see a lot of, like you said, you said a lot when you said that people skip over uh, the section of sin or, or our failure to adhere to the law. And I think that's a huge problem when we are evangelizing because, uh, like you're saying, um, Sinners don't know that they're sinners until they have confronted the law of God and recognize that they fall short. And so uh, they don't confront the law of God until it's brought forward to them and they see the reality of it. It's I've, I've heard it said like this, is sinners don't know they're sinners like fish don't know they're wet. This is reality. We live in sin. It's, it's, it's all around us everywhere. We, and so when you ask a person, do you believe yourself to be good? Almost always, unless they, they know the, you know, the presentation, they'll say, yeah, I, I would consider myself a good person. Mm-hmm. But when you lay the law before them, they realize very quickly that they're not a good person. Well, and it's necessary because that self-estimation is horizontal. That's right. Uh, They say, well, I'm better than my neighbor. I go to church. I'm better than her. Mm -hmm. I help people. They've never had to look at the Mm -hmm. vertical estimation of God with the perfection uh, required and called for by the law. And and understand, when you do this to people, when you're unwilling to share the law because you're fear of being awkward or whatever reason, that is not loving. Mm -hmm. When you present uh, the gospel as some self-help, uh, to get you to a better life, I love Ray Comfort, a yeah. mm-hmm. uh, founder yeah. of Living Waters Ministry, gives a great analogy. He said, imagine you're climbing on a plane, and as you're fixing to climb on, the stewardess hands you a, a parachute, and she says, put this on. She said, it's going to make your your flight more enjoyable and relaxing and, and just give you a fuller experience in this flight. 
And he said, after a while, you've got that thing on your back and it's heavy and it makes you sit awkward in the seat and you're looking around and other people aren't wearing the parachute and they're kind of looking at you and pointing and laughing and and it's very uncomfortable and eventually you're going to take it off and say, well, this isn't what she told me. But he said, now imagine you're, you're climbing on that same plane and she hands you a parachute and she says, put this on. At some point in this flight, this plane is going to fall to the earth. It's going to plummet. It's going to crash. This is your only hope for survival. You don't care how it feels, how uncomfortable. You don't care that other people laugh and point. You cling to that parachute with Mm -hmm. everything you have because you know it is your only hope for survival. And that is what the law does when you present the beauty of the gospel in comparison to the perfection required by the law then a person clings to that grace and that mercy right. uh, no matter what life throws their way. Right. People need to be told and more specifically be shown from Scripture what the bar actually is that God mm-hmm. has set because the bar that we set for ourselves is always going to be lower than whatever we're living. Uh, you're, mm-hmm. uh, most people, you know, I mean, there are some that have hit rock bottom and have just been destroyed by their own sinful lifestyle in a very evident way. But your typical person— uh, whatever their bar for goodness is, it's it's lower than what they're li- living. That they think they're good people. You know, uh, if if they're on drugs, they might say, "Well, I've never killed anybody." If they're uh, not on drugs, well, they might say, "Well, at least I'm not on drugs." That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's whatever whatever lifestyle they haven't done or whatever decision they haven't made. That's their justification to themselves of being good. But Scripture tells us, no, we're not good. None is righteous. The bar isn't your neighbor. The bar isn't the drug addict on the street or the murderer in the prison cell. The bar that's set is God's own character, which is perfect. And it's God's own law, which is perfect. And we've all failed to live up to that. And so you guys are exactly right. People need to be shown that because if they don't know that they're a sinner in need of a Savior, they'll never turn to the Savior. Well, and I think of, you know, we've been teaching on Wednesday nights through Matthew, and we've worked through the Sermon on the Mount, and and Jesus was speaking to a people who thought they were moral. They had kept the law. Mm-hmm. They were the right. descendants of Abraham. And and so it took first Jesus breaking through all of this misunderstanding, and you've heard it said, but I'm telling you. And likewise, and, and I think often we don't realize what a positive estimation we have of ourselves. We'll feign humbleness. We'll feign, you know, that mm-hmm. we look at ourselves lowly, but truthfully, none of us do. We always compare ourselves to others. And and Scripture even says that the heart will always give a good estimation of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're we, all in the business of self-preservation. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you see that clearly in evangelism. And you said this earlier that you don't want to seem unloving, uh, that, that you, you don't want to present the law because you don't want to seem unloving in a sense. Uh, but, but you are... Um, preserving a self-love in doing so because you don't want to be awkward. You don't want to have that that conflict. Uh, and so one of the things that I think needs to be thrown out there is that as you begin to evangelize and, and present the gospel to people, uh, you'll realize very quickly, quickly as you present the law, uh, you'll make a lot of enemies. Sure. Absolutely. And, and you know, I want to make sure we're clear on this. Uh, it It is awkward. Absolutely. And often, if we're going to be honest, that's why we don't do it. It's not because we're worried about offending the other person. It's we're worried about how it's going to make us feel. That's right. Mm-hmm. And it is unloving not to be truthful. So I want you to think about what you're doing. You have a person in front of you that right now is an enemy of God, the Creator. They are on a trajectory that is going to separate them from God in eternity in hell in torment. 
God has sovereignly orchestrated an opportunity for you to share the beauty and the grace and the love and the mercy of the gospel with them. Yet in that moment, you are so selfish, you are so worried about self-preservation that you are unwilling to give them even the smallest amount of kindness. So I don't want to sound harsh when I say that, but I think it's important we understand the truth that yeah. when we refuse to share the God, the, the law of God with the gospel, it's not because we're worried about that person we're talking to. It's because we're worried about ourselves more than them. Now, that's the story of uh, Penn Jillette. Mm-hmm. You probably know this one. He's a famous magician, but he's also an atheist. And he commended uh, a Christian that confronted him after the show. Uh, not He didn't become a Christian, but he actually acknowledged that if a Christian really believes what they believe, they would be willing to have that awkward conversation. And he, he ended up commending this guy for having enough faith in what he believes and, and coming to him after his show and presenting the gospel. Well, and I've even quoted him in a sermon because he goes on to say, how hateful yes. would you have to be if you believe that I am headed for an eternity in hell how hateful would you have to be to know the truth and not be willing right. to tell me? But most most Christians want to hold people's hand on the way to hell and make them feel good yeah. as they take each step instead of trying their best to turn them around with the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we talk about this, I'm reminded of Ezekiel chapter 3. Uh, Ezekiel, the prophet of God, he's told by God in chapter 3, verse 17, "'Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel.'" Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. God tells Ezekiel, if the man dies because of his own iniquity, it's on him, but the blood's also on your hand because you failed to warn him, like I told you. He goes on, he says, but if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die because you have not warned him. He shall die for his sin and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. So we see there. Now that was that. That's specifically told to a prophet in the days of Israel, and God's talking about actual physical harm and destruction that will come from those who are living unrighteously. Yeah. But the principle still applies to us. We have people going toward destruction in an eternal spiritual sense, and if we don't tell them and warn them, then their blood will, in one sense, be on our hands. Uh, now, if we do warn them and they don't listen, we've done what we were supposed to do at that point. Well, I think Paul, and he even quotes Ezekiel when he he tells, but you know, your blood's not on my hands. I'm free right. of the guilt. Mm-hmm. I've told you the truth. So I think to kind of sum it up, it, it basically boils down to we have to first and foremost love God enough and two, love our fellow man enough that we're willing to tell them the whole unadulterated truth. It is not loving uh, to withhold information that is vital to their salvation, no matter how you try to sugarcoat it. Right? Yeah, and when you look at the story of Ezekiel, you you remember this, and this is one of the the comforting realities for me as a as a preacher and a pastor is that the outcome is determined by the Lord. You know, and so we're we are presenting truth, and and we would love to see 
you know, everyone we ever preach to or present the gospel to come to salvation. But there's a comfort in knowing that it doesn't depend upon you. Right. You don't, you know, you don't have to uh, phrase it uh, in in some special miraculous way. As a preacher, you know, this the story of Ezekiel is is that reality that the outcome is determined by God. You know, the destruction was was coming, and you know, God gave him a call, a responsibility. And as long as Ezekiel was was faithful to that call, his hands were clean. As as a pastor, that reality is is beyond comforting to me. As I stand in the pulpit and proclaim the gospel, or I share and evangelize uh, to someone I know is unconverted, um, I, I trust that the results are in God's hands. That's right. Yeah, well, yeah. That's a reminder that the outcome's not up to us. And so many of the problems we talked about earlier, I think, uh, stem from the root of this idea that we can affect the outcome ultimately. Mm. Um, but God and His sovereignty, He's not going to be thwarted. And he, he controls the outcome, but He's also ordained the means, and the means to salvation is the declaration of the gospel. So if we're not sharing the gospel, no one will be saved. Mm. Well, and there's such a freedom in that, realizing you're not the harvester. That's not your job. Your job is simply to cast the seed of the gospel. That's right. And there is a freedom and there is a confidence that comes in that. And I agree. I mean, honestly, Mm. guys, I stand on stage every Sunday, and if I thought it solely relied upon my eloquence, my ability I couldn't do this. It would be crushing that that pressure, but realizing that it's just my job to lovingly tell the truth, Mm -hmm. and ultimately God will reap the harvest, gives me the confidence and the freedom uh, to do what I need to do and to tell the truth of the gospel. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3? He said, uh, I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who gives the growth. Absolutely. And so, uh, guys, as we start to bring this to a close, I hope today, if nothing else, take encouragement from our conversation. It is not a a possibility to share the gospel in the sense of it wasn't a suggestion. It is a command from your Lord. Listen, we do this for a living. We're pastors. It's awkward for us. That's right. It's not easy, but you have to love God and you have to love your fellow man enough to be willing to move past that awkwardness. And what you're going to find most of the time, it's not nearly as difficult as you've worked it up in your mind beforehand. Mm So, guys, before we close out, I want to give you an opportunity for any closing thoughts. I just think of the parable of the the soils. Uh, The sower of the uh, seed, he sowed indiscriminately. He, He cast that seed on every type of soil. He didn't try to figure out which soil would produce the seed and which soil would not. And that's our job. We sow indiscriminately. We we preach the gospel to everyone we can, and then God takes care of the rest. Mm-hmm. I would say, you know, um, if you're going to go out and evangelize, and, and if you're going to have something to say, you've had to have been in your study to say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I would say that if, if that's, you know, a command from Scripture, from from Jesus Himself, to go and preach the gospel and make disciples. It is also a call for us to go to our study uh, and, and also to practice, to to learn to articulate the gospel. Uh, like Dalton had given us those four easy points to remember: it was God, man, Christ, and response. And so, having those things in your back pocket are going to be beyond useful for you. Uh, but secondly, I would say this: 
the perfect moment is never going to happen. Uh, you're going to have to create these moments. You're going to have to, in a sense, kick the door down, uh, make a way, um, and be a trailblazer for the gospel. And so even though it's going to be awkward, even though there's going to be um, tense moments, I-, I promise you this is, is first, the Word of God never returns void, which means this, you're not going to regret it. You're never going to regret um, a moment of preaching the gospel. And I think of a moment very recently in my life um, as we had the uh, the gospel tree. It was an opportunity for us to preach the gospel to others. I remember uh, finally kicking that door in and how much joy it brought me just to be faithful to the truth. I didn't see the outcome. I didn't see a response. Um, but I knew I did what God had called me to do. And there's so much joy in obedience. Well, guys, well said, and we'll end it there on behalf of Pastor Chad and our special guest, Dalton, and our engineer, Aaron R.T. Thanks for being with us. We hope you have a great week. Thank you for listening to From the Pastor's Heart, a podcast from First Baptist Church of Opelousas. First Baptist Church of Opelousas is a biblically-driven, diverse, evangelistic family of believers seeking to glorify God by calling Acadiana to a saving faith and the hope found only in Jesus Christ. First Baptist Church of Opelousas. One faith, one hope, one family.